hello, hello, and welcome to Red Voices and this second episode covering Manchester United's treble season, this time covering the FA Cup campaign. Uh, Ewan Lennett and Richard Cant on hand to recount the series of thrills, spills and replays that led to United's fourth FA Cup trophy of that decade and the second part of that amazing 1998-99 treble season. Richard, how are we? I'm all right. I'm all right. Considering we're all in hibernation, it's not too bad. Yeah, that seems to be a fairly reasoned summation of things. Yeah, my other half's quite enjoying it. She's 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 a this is the longest break she's had from work for forever. So yeah, she's quite happy. But it is quite tedious, isn't it? Well, I'm watching more on Netflix. I've been catching up with several years of BoJack Horseman, which is great. You need to go on Sunderland till I die. I do. I though. Yeah, you do. You do really do. Because it's just, it's just, it's just wonderful. The ineptitude is ineptitude. What we're really, I mean, we're in a world surrounded by ineptitude right now. Rich, do I really want more of that in my life? Well, I mean, given that, given the the extent to which Sunderland posnaned at us when they when we lost the the title in the most agonising fashion ever, there's always going to be a degree of Schadenfreude in in watching their their failures. Ah, uh, now I get it. You right. see, so yeah, mm. so it's good watch. The first, the last series was was good, but I'm I'm about three episodes into this one. And it's it's proving equally fun. Excellent. Any other recommendations at the minute? No, we're re-watching Homeland purely because one is good and two because there are eight series of it, and we've got an awful <laughs> we've got an awful lot of time to fill. So yeah, man. Okay. Uh, well, I guess we'll uh, we'll start moseying on to this uh, FA Cup triumph. I guess looking back at the trophy itself and the competition itself in the nineties. I guess it's, it, it, it's taken on a different context now, and obviously, considering that we won it and then subsequently didn't uh, compete in it the following season, it, it's easy to say United have got maybe a complex relationship with it, but it really did form a key part of Sir Alex Ferguson's sort of successes in the 90s, wasn't it? You know, you go back to 1990 with uh, uh, Mark Robbins' famous goal against Forrest, which, you know, is quote-unquote saved his job at the time, which led to United's first trophy in quite some time, I guess, at that stage, and really sort of saved Ferguson's bacon. Four FA Cup trophies in the decade of the 90s. I mean, there's a lot to pick out of that period as well, isn't there? You know, you go back to uh, the 1994 campaign, 4-0 against Chelsea, and then that awful 1-0 defeat to Everton the following year, and then the grindy of all grindy victories against Liverpool in 96. So there's a lot of memories packed in that decade for the FA Cup and United, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the pe- period when the FA Cup was still, I think, at its at its pe- the peak of its prestige and that it still meant an, an awful lot to the teams that got to the final and teams that won it. Um, I, I wonder if, if perhaps kind of the, the treble kind of era was the point at which it maybe just started to lose its importance for perhaps the top clubs just because they were competing on so many fronts. But, you know, 99 was still, still a final at the old Wembley and all of those finals at, at Wembley felt like proper finals proper FA Cup finals that's what I grew up on and that's 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 what we still had in 99 well it was even the the sort of the the prestige of how the BBC used to cover it as well like it was Mm. three or four hours prior to kickoff and you'd have interviews you'd see them relaxing in their hotels I mean there was all sorts of coverage leading up to that day it felt like a proper event and it hasn't quite got that same sort of pull these days I don't think it it hasn't and I think Part of that is down to the fact it's not played at Wembley anymore and, and it, it's kind of had to move around. And also just because the biggest clubs have started to take it slightly less seriously given the the trophy, the bigger trophies they kind of were after at the time. And then that seems to have filtered down to throughout the Premier League, really. And, you know, it's quite a surprise if you if you see a Premier League team put out a full-strength side in the, the first, perhaps the first three or four rounds of the cup. And that's a shame. It's a real shame because, like you say, the, the, the FA Cup for me, that the FA, FA Cup final day was the 
best day of the, the football season. Even if United weren't playing in it, it was the best day. I mean, I can I can mm. I remember as you say, what starting watching at ten in the morning and you know hours of preview and and following the teams on the bus on the coaches on the way to the, the stadium and <laughs> so much padding. I know it was it was amazing, but but I used to watch all of it. You used to watch absolutely yeah. all of it, and you know it's a real shame that that's kind of been lost now. But I suppose I'm grateful that I saw. United win quite a lot of them during the time when mm. it really, really meant as much as it did. And I guess coming into '99 as well, United had had a pretty couple of rubbish years since that triumph over Liverpool in '96. You know, we'd been knocked out by Wimbledon in a fourth round replay in '97, and then surprisingly knocked out by Barnsley in a fifth round replay in '98. It was a really weakened team. It, that, that that defeat mm. really rankled with me because we put out a very weak team for that for that game and, and deservedly lost. Not ideal and. Obviously, in the midst of United's treble season, it's very easy to make the point that the FA Cup is probably the least important of the three sort of points of the treble, really, isn't it? You know, it's the least prestigious of those trophies and on paper, at least the easiest to win, given the calibre of the opposition or the teams that you could play. But at the same time, it was still a huge part of that season, wasn't it? You know, it was vital, I think, for Ferguson that given those two years where we'd gone out much earlier than we would have wanted, that we were able to continue to fight on all fronts and I guess the fact that we're able to get so deep into the FA Cup and obviously go on and win it and especially the way we won some of these games too it added an extra sort of help to what United were trying to build that season you know you think back to you know we'll look we'll go through all these games but there's so many moments in this series and this campaign where you just think wow that must have been a huge help to the team and the squad trying to push forward in the league and the Champions League at the same time. So let's kick things off with our first game of that campaign in the third round. Home tie against Middlesbrough on the 3rd of January. Uh, I'm going to start this off, Rich. This was my first ever visit to Old Trafford. Wow. Yeah, as an 11-year-old kid. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's pretty cool to have actually seen United beat Middlesbrough at home, which wasn't exactly a, a regular occurrence at that time, was it? So... Well, considering that it was only several weeks prior that Borough had gone 3-0 up against us, and admittedly we scored two goals back, but we still lost 3-2 mm. in what was our last defeat of that trouble season. Yeah, I can't say I was massively confident about our chances coming into this game. You know, we spoke about this on the previous episode, but Borough were always a tricky proposition for United at this stage, and it didn't have the feel of an easy game. United, coming into it, I mean, I guess, you know, as a young kid, as an 11-year-old, you know, speaking about actually going to United for the first time, I'm pretty sure he went on the tram, on the metro in, into Salford. It was an amazing experience. You know, what was, what was your first game like while, while we're on the subject? My first game, my first game was in 1988 and it was a, um, it was an away game at QPR. It was a <laughs> oh, wow. dreadful season, dreadful, dreadful season that season and United were winning 2-1 with about eight minutes to go and conceded twice, including an injury time winner from QPR's Andy Gray at the oh. time. So so not the best of not the best of experiences. But like you say, when you're that age you don't really care, do you? Well, you, you care, but but it's about the experience, isn't it? It's the seeing mm-hmm. your team for the first time and you know, that's that's the age when you still when you get to the you get into the ground and you walk up steps to and you it opens out and you see the pitch and it just feels like the most incredible thing in the world which is yeah. which is something that I really miss as an adult but I don't think you care quite so much about the football at that age as you do as you get older and then then the performances and the results and the players become more important yeah I'd agree with that but yeah I mean looking at the lineups for that match as well it was a pretty strong lineup that Ferguson chose you know you had Henningberg Wes Brown in defense alongside Dennis Irwin and Yapstam so no Gary Neville available that game, but a look of it. Blancfist, Nicky Buck, Giggs and Keane in midfield, and then York and Cole, that wonderful axis up front. 
United really did try and put this game to bed relatively quickly, didn't they? You know, they started really quickly. I remember Roy Keane spooning over from close range after Mark Schwarzer had cleared quite badly. Borough didn't really get up so much in that first half. And then York and Cole also both had one-on-one efforts against Mark Schwarzer, uh, both of which were saved. And it was clear that the Aussie was having a pretty good game. And it, it, it never felt comfortable, this game, did it? No, I mean, it's, it's such a strange season. We've had such an amazing team, but there are so many games that almost felt like they're in the balance so much of the time. And this, you know, this was one where United, in, you know, in theory, and, and in terms of the kind of direction of play, were by far the superior team, but we just didn't make it count. And then ultimately sort of paid the price by conceding a, a, a goal on the counter. And a crap goal as well. It was a really crap goal. It was a terrible goal to concede. It was a bit of a scuff finish and we left ourselves having to do another relatively late feat of escapology um those feats of escapology just kind of merge into each other in that season don't they there's there's so many ridiculous games and ridiculous narratives and i mean this 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 when we when we were thinking about this particular pod on the fa cup the middlesbrough game is the game from that run that i forget that i i didn't remember i couldn't remember who we played in the third round until i actually went back and looked at it and then and then watched the highlights again and then it came back but it was another one where we could have gone out if we didn't have that kind of fortitude that we that we had that season and that so many United teams have had. True. I mean, also, I think we might be somewhat indebted to the fact that the referee missed a complete dive, but we'll get onto that in a minute. Yeah. yeah, so that goal, you mentioned that it was a counter-attack. I think it was actually Colin Cooper sending a long free kick from his own half. Brian Dean then headed it on and nowhere was anywhere near Andy Townsend. I think two of our centre-backs, or maybe Berg and Stam, had both gone towards Brian mm. Dean, and no one was anywhere near Andy Townsend, because, I don't know, they assumed he wasn't going to do much, and he just slid it off across Schmeichel, and it was going so, so slowly. I remember being in the family stand, uh, which would be the southwest corner of Old Trafford at the time, and it, you could just see it rolling in slowly, and there was just this sense, oh, God, this is going to be another one of those days. You know, it... it wasn't necessarily coming, but because United had just struggled to take their chances, there was just a sense that we were so susceptible to making a mistake like this. And Borough, again, considering how freely they were willing to punish our mistakes in the game previously in a couple of weeks prior, yes, it's fine, 1 0, all right, Middlesbrough, enjoy Mm. it. I mean, it was a tricky game as well. You know, United really struggled to sort of get back into much of a momentum, but it took Andy Cole blasting one in. You remember this one with the gigs reverse pass? across the defence and into the penalty area. And he, I, maybe he could have taken a touch, but he just decided not to and just absolutely smashed it beyond Schwarzer into the top corner. I guess actually not taking a touch is what's helped the ball go in there as well. Yeah, one of the things that you notice from Cole from around that kind of era is, is the fact that he scored so many goals by hitting shots really early, by not, not taking that extra touch, by, by just connecting before the keeper's quite ready for it. Um, and that was that was just one that he just hit so early and with so much power um, and was close enough in that really the, the keeper didn't really have any chance of, of keeping it out. And I think once he once he got to one all, it was just a case of whether United could batter the door down and make it count. Yeah, admittedly, one one, you were starting to worry if this was going into replay territory mm. uh, until Nicky. But I mean, I've looked at the replay of this several times. I remember turning to my brother, I was over with my brother at the time, and bearing in mind, just just for a bit of context, as a side note, my brother was wearing a Liverpool shirt under his jacket. Ouch. I know, it was bold, it was very, very bold. bold. No one saw it. Uh, Nicky Butt went over under the smallest amount of pressure from Neil Madison, and Madison was understandably very annoyed about it. Rich, be honest, it was a bit of a dive. No, you see, I, look, I've watched this back the other day, and I, I can see why he went down. 
I, I think I don't think it's as clear cut a dive as you as you think it was. To be honest, I mean, I, I can see, I can. See. I, mean, I didn't think it was a dive at the time, but I've seen the replays and thought, Ooh. yeah. I mean, he did kind of he did kind of dive in, and it's one of those ones. Do you remember um, Stephen Gerrard got a penalty? It was the first first game of the season for Liverpool away at Sheffield United one season, and the um, the defender dived in for a tackle, and Gerrard basically jumped over his leg, no contact, but then kind of stumbled as he landed and and sort of half sort of side-footed it straight to the keeper and Liverpool got a penalty for it. And it was a bit of a controversial decision at the time, but it was one of, kind of one like that, that the defender kind of kind of went in, he'd put his foot in, and but almost had to evade it, but it meant that there was no actual contact on him. Um, so I can, I can, I don't think it was as clear a dive as you think, but I don't, I can see why they'd be slightly miffed that that was given. I mean, somewhat fortuitous, shall we just say that? Because I wasn't necessarily sure where the goal was coming from at that stage. No, that way. no, it was, it was a good one to get. No, absolutely. Gave us a 2-1 lead on 83 minutes. And do you know what the worst thing about this third goal, Rich? We were leaving to try and evade the traffic and the queues. Oh, I never do that, never. At Old Trafford, so I missed Giggs' goal. I, I know, I mean, this was 11-year-old me going with my mum and my brother, so don't worry, this, this isn't a recurring pattern in my later yeah, life. Yeah, explain, mum. But yeah, uh, to be fair, though, getting out of Old Trafford at that stage, and in general, can be quite a, um, quite the ordeal, yeah, unless you're willing to stick around and have a drink somewhere. Yeah, it's true. M- much better going to Old Trafford as an adult, put it that way. Anyway, yeah, quick one-two between Oli Solskjaer and Giggs. Uh, Giggs just blasted it through Swartzer. He got a little bit of contact on it from the left-hand side, but couldn't stop it going in. Set up a rather interesting tie with Liverpool at home at the 24th of January, just at the end of the month, several weeks later. Now, I've gone back through um, basically as many details as I can from this era to have a look where Liverpool were at at this time. As you mentioned when we were talking about the Premier League season, Liverpool had obviously taken something of a dip from the early 90s onwards, and the 90s were a pretty barren period for them. I didn't realise that it was so bad at this stage between the two of us. Liverpool hadn't beaten United since December 1995 and were in the middle of a winless run that featured us winning seven times and three draws, and they wouldn't go on to beat us again until December 2000. Um, they will end the 99 season in seventh position as Gerard Houllier. They'd lost 14 games, knocked out of the League Cup by uh, the eventual winners Spurs that season, and knocked out of the old UEFA Cup third round, I think it was, by Celta Vigo. <laughs> Good grief, they were rubbish. They were, but they they still had one or two really, really high-class players, didn't they? I mean, ultimately, whenever Michael Owen was at that kind of just exploding stage that he was at in his in his teenage years, and he just had the most incredible World Cup prior to that season. So whilst they their team was not what it had been by a very, very long way, they still had an absolutely phenomenal, really world-class talent centre-forward at the very least. Mm. And it's just those games where they hadn't beaten us for a while, but you just never knew with Liverpool against United, did you? There was always there was always a twist. There was always something that, you know, you saw in the league game at, um, at Anfield, even then, you know, United 2-0 United up and then Liverpool pulled it back to two all and it was just a really sort of tumultuous game so we had a lot of games with them that were really tough tough matches I, I can't recall I mean once having gone behind in the third minute I can't remember being that deflated by conceding an early goal when I was so certain we were going to do do them over quite relatively comfortably and then the, the nature of the match I, I, can't, I, I don't really recall United ever trailing that long in a match and then winning it it was just just the most ridiculous incredible another ridiculous incredible match in in a season of them yeah exactly i mean it, michael owen scored after three minutes so we were behind for a grand total of 85 mm. which is 
I mean, it felt forever. Apart from maybe the Champions League final, uh, yeah, yeah. Apart from maybe the Champions League final, mm. was there a period of the season where we were behind for that long? I don't think there was. Certainly not. No, certainly. I mean, I, mean, I can't remember too many games where United have been behind for that long and still won in ninety minutes. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, to be fair, we didn't help ourselves, did we? Because that first goal was again pretty crap. <laughs> Vergard Hegem, and I completely forgot this man. Actually, I wasn't even sure this man existed prior to actually looking at the highlights again. Crosses in from the right. And obviously, Michael Owen, being tiny, was able to find space because our defence at that stage was still prone to the occasional brain fart and no one marked him. He just headed home unassisted. Fantastic. Three minutes in. Great. That's what you want. There were so many chances as well going into that game. You you remember Keane almost scoring after David James had flapped it across. Uh, Paul Ince, Manchester United legend Paul Ince, of course, cleared off the line. Uh, Fowler this mad long range effort in the first half as well that was curling up an Overschmeichel but it was just outside of the post and then going into the second half Roy Keane on the score with a layoff from Giggs and that was a great strike I remember that the effort and the way he hit that so purely but it just got deflected beyond the post and then he hit the post in a similar goal at least a similar chance to um, Skull setting up Solskjaer for our winner late in the game uh, it hit, hit off the post and then it was taking up into the 88th minute for United to make the breakthrough and I guess the funny thing about that in particular if you go back to I believe it was Sky commentary was Andy Gray was insistent I mean let's not make frequent mention of a serial terrible person Andy Gray but uh, to quote the man I told you this is Liverpool's day yeah famous last words mm-hmm. it was just, it was just incredible wasn't it just it, it, it was the least the least kind of United goal one of the least sort of United esque goals of the season, wasn't it? It was just a, just a, a ball crossed in from a set piece, I think, and then and, and a header across goal and a tap in it from York. It was the the oddest match and oddest goal, but it was it was incredible. Yeah, well, I mean, I think looking at the replay of York's goal in particular, you, know, you see the way that that cross has just come in so deep. You know, it hangs in the air and it basically evades almost everyone right in front of the six-yard box, and it comes across towards the left-hand post to Cole. He has a great job of just passing it straight off across goal, and because York knows where it's going, instinctively he's there and he's ready and he taps it in from close range. And, oh, God, such a relief as well. I mean, at that stage, you probably would have taken a replay. You know, no one enjoys games against Liverpool, even though, as I mentioned, obviously we're on a pretty good run against them, and we did expect to win. But, yeah, you'd have taken 1-1 at full time, but United didn't. (laughs) That, that, that equalising goal, I think it was it was the kind of goal that defenses concede when they're tired, when the you know when minds are really tired and you know, they just switched off from the free kick. And with that in mind, you you could see then that there was just a, an energy behind United for uh, from that moment from the equalising goal, and and you could see. And yeah. I think I think as well the psychology of it from Liverpool's perspective that they'd led for so long, they'd led for an hour and whatever hour and twenty five minutes to lead for that long and then to concede right at the end and in a game that you thought you were going to see out you know that's got to be an enormous psychological blow and it was just it was just typical of United that season they just didn't stop and ultimately won it and we have the the wonderful image of the sky cameras cutting to the absolutely heartbroken Liverpool fan with the with the terrible highlights in the uh (laughs) in the crowd and you know it's one of those images that's um burned into my memory of that season just 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 the just the schadenfreude of that moment was was 
made it all worth it. Absolutely. I think the earring is burned into my yeah. brain more than anything else, to be honest with you. But yeah, you're right. I mean, just before we talk about the goal, I, th- I think you're spot on in terms of the fact that United had an incredible ability to just wear teams down. You know, I think they frequently took advantage of lapses in concentration and were able to grind out results like this. You know, we saw several examples of it in that Premier League season. But in particular, you know, this was a dress rehearsal for the final at Camp Now, wasn't it? You know, you look at it in terms of the way that United, obviously they had a lot more pressure in this game and a lot more clear-cut chances than we ended up against Bayern in the Champions League final. But it was an example of what United could do and the mentality that Ferguson instilled in the team. Even if they're behind, they expect to get a chance and they expect to take it more often than not. And then if they get one, then they expect to go on and win it. And it's just seeing that mentality full on. Mm. You know, it's incredible. And watching United take that 1-1 draw, many teams would have just stopped and gone out for the draw and maybe tried to keep things tight and make sure that they were able to get through the game. But United just weren't that team, were they? You know, it, it they trusted and they believed that they'd get another opportunity. And they were right. You know, Liverpool were weakening. They'd spent, as you've said, so long in the lead. And it must have been a huge psychological blow to concede like that. And you could just see they were all at sea. You know, it was Yapstan with a deep ball into the box. The ball came down and York didn't get a touch on it, but it was enough of a distraction that Liverpool's defence just couldn't reorganise. And Scholes took it into the box. And then in a we- it was a weird sort of dynamic between the two of them in the box, wasn't it? Solskjaer sort of took it off his legs and Scholes just thought, all right, fine, then you take it. And he took one touch and then hit it inside David James's uh, near post. I mean, somewhat scrappy, but who even cares? The euphoria at that point. Two late, late goals against Liverpool to knock them out of the FA Cup. Fourth round or not, what a moment. Yeah, and I think it was it was results like that and, and performances like that that kind of sustained United's level and United's intensity throughout that season because how could you not come out of a game like that on an absolutely enormous high? I think one of the things that's, that's, that's most notable from that season as a whole is just how the team's confidence actually grew throughout the season. United got to a point in kind of January, February time when they seemed to have almost absolute belief in themselves. Whereas in the first three or four months of the season, they'd look quite jittery at times. They'd lost games they shouldn't have done and they'd perhaps doubted themselves a bit. And I think this was another bit of evidence that this was a team that now absolutely believed that they could beat anybody, that they could score against anybody and that they just weren't going to be beaten. And, and if, if you're losing for nearly an hour and a half in a game against your biggest rivals and you turn it around, score twice in the last couple of minutes, two or three, three or four minutes to win the game, it's just going to prove to you you genuinely can overcome anything. You can beat anybody in any circumstance. And and, and, and that, that season just became self-sustaining. And I think that this, this match was one of the important matches in that actually happening. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I guess... Followed up by two slightly less enjoyable and entertaining ties. Uh, We've got the fifth round victory against Fulham again at home. I mean, we were drawn at home in in every single round of the actual campaign, which was an interesting one for us. Against second division Fulham, who I didn't realise until I was doing the research for this, managed by Kevin Keegan at the time. Yeah, I mean, I I remember looking at that game when when it was drawn and thinking, okay, they're kind of at the start of something. They certainly, they were throwing a bit of money at it and really the kind of start of Fulham's rise over the next over the subsequent few years but I kind of looked at that game and thought it should have been a lot a lot more easy than it actually ultimately proved to be and it was a really really tricky game in the end you know we scored in the first half and then it just the second goal just wouldn't come and it, it made for a slightly more nervy tie than it, than it should really have been and it's, it's strange really that we were probably least decisive against the, the lowest ranked 
team that we that we faced in the competition. No, exactly. I mean, it was the least impressive of all those victories. You know, Fulham didn't necessarily have a lot, and Mike Taylor was making some incredible saves. And it was a relatively straightforward goal from United standards to actually put us through. It was a but punting it up to Solskjaer in the box, laid off the skulls, opened up his body and glided it into the far post. Not that I haven't made notes on it or anything. I remember John Solarko missed a pretty good chance to equalise, but it hit straight at Schmeichel, and it was down to tell you that the scoreline wasn't necessarily more flattering. But yeah, you know that was one of the more straightforward elements of the treble season. Moving on to uh, the sixth round slash quarterfinal against Chelsea at home. A nil-nil game setting up for the replay. Now, again, this is where the actual context of how many big and huge games we were playing comes into play because this was just four days after United's first leg quarterfinal in the Champions League against Inter Milan. You know, again, a huge, huge game for United considering how we'd essentially underachieved in the Champions League and then obviously with another huge game in the FA Cup it meant that we couldn't necessarily do a hell of a lot of jigging with the side at that point could we no it, the games were the games were coming so thick and fast at that point i just remember we were playing every 3 or 4 days or it certainly seemed like we were playing every 3 or 4 days for quite a long time and that Chelsea game was a weekend game and as you say we we we'd had the the quarter final first leg in the week before it as well i almost felt like i had kind of um match fatigue at that point I mean I had like <laughs> I think as well at the time we, we had quite a poor record against Chelsea for quite a few years we didn't win the home game against them that season in the league either and this was a really really tricky time I mean they were in second in the league at the time I mean it's, it's, it's amazing really that given the difficulty of the Champions League run that we had that we also in the FA Cup probably faced the three other strongest opponents we could have faced in what was essentially our third choice comp or not third choice competition but the the, the, the competition for third importance of the three I would have thought we were playing these massive games every few days um and, and as you say you know Fergie could mix it mix it up for, to, to a certain degree and try and move things around a bit but there was always going to be a degree of just a lot the old game where you just lost a bit of impetus but the one thing that United had in that in that period was that we did even though we had these odd games or odd, odd spells where we weren't quite at our best, we weren't losing games, mm. and that's you know that's one where we really kind of it was disappointing that you know Chelsea ended up with playing with ten men for more than half of that that first leg, the original tie, and we couldn't put it we didn't put it away. Um, I don't remember feeling like we'd lost the chance to go through. I, I I really remember thinking we had a great chance to go to Stamford Bridge and win and win the tie. No, I mean speaking about the way that the team needed to be refreshed. You know, York and Cole started against Inter, and York got those two headers in the first leg, which meant that he, Cole, and Sheringham were all on the bench for this game for the first uh, sorry initial tie, and then uh, Solskjaer was playing up front on his own. And yeah, as you mentioned there, Roberto Di Matteo, two yellow cards uh, right at the end of the first half, got sent off. And then Scholes managed to get two yellow cards himself and got sent off right towards the end of the game. So yeah, a lot of that game was played against 10 men. And you know, the only real chance of note that I can see from looking back at the game itself was a really great cross that Gary Neville essentially just needed to head forwards. I think it was a Beckham cross. Of course, of course it was a Beckham cross. Who else was it going to be? It sort of glanced off his head because maybe it was going too fast or he didn't quite judge it well enough. And it went across goal to the far post and ended up hitting it. That was the interesting thing because, you know, watching the treble DVD talking about this, there was a the actual, I think the commentary or the narration was that maybe a chance had been missed here uh, to actually have wrapped this game up. And I guess, obviously, again, because of the way that the fixtures were actually piling up, this replay was three days after the original game had been played. So three days later, we're already going on another massive, massive game, this time to Stamford Bridge, you know, a, a ground that... 
at the time, you know, I, I had a look at United's head-to-head record against Chelsea over the last 10 years, and it's not as bad as I initially thought. But at all order, Chelsea were second in the league at that time. You know, the fact that we're able to get that first goal so early certainly helped matters, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And it's, it's another of those games where one of, the, one of the things from that season that most delighted me was, I think, just the realisation of how good Dwight York was. And that came fairly early, but also what a big game player he was as well. He'd scored in, in Munich against Bayern, he'd scored against Barcelona. He came to a new club, an enormous new club, and essentially was the complete player almost from his, his first kick for United. And this was another game where, you know, ultimately he made the difference in what was an absolutely enormous tie on a ground that United didn't win at a lot uh, during that period. Well, for quite a long period, United didn't win a lot at Stamford Bridge. To get that first goal, I think, was really, really important. And obviously, it's, it's the goal, the second goal, which is the one that's more remembered for for its quality. But it was still a really, really well-taken goal to actually swivel and, and volley home into the corner from the sort of looping header. It's forgotten for his second goal. But, but that, that, that game was essentially, it was a really tight game. And it was essentially what separated the two teams was Dwight York's excellence really at finishing yeah I mean we see this happening in a couple other games during on this season but United started a big game really quickly didn't we and then we were able to get that early goal which allowed us to sit back a little bit and not have to put everything all we had into 90 minutes of football so yeah certainly the fact that we're able to get that lead within four minutes huge for this game and huge for the tie because it meant we were able to sit back a little bit that did mean we invited some pressure but yeah just describing the goal uh, Beckham with that deep cross uh, initially headed up in the air by Frank Leboeuf god that's a name I've not heard for a while uh, Cole helps it on and manages to get to the rebound first and then as you said York firing home but yeah Chelsea missed some really good chances in that game uh, Di Matteo to Zola and then Schmeichel's out early to block again Side note, huge performance from Schmeichel. He was excellent this game. And then the second half, uh, Celestine Babayaro, again, what a name, with a deep cross. And then Tori Andre Flo completely misses the header. Dennis Wise is behind him with an open goal to shoot at. But because Tori Andre Flo's legs are so long, he stops the ball from going in. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That's the chance I always remember. He's just, yeah. you, you really don't see that happen very much. Flo knew absolutely nothing about it. He's, he's sort of sliding into the, into the net head first. You know, mm. if Wise had got a decent contact, it would have been a goal, but he didn't, and it and he just scuffed it enough for for Flo's outstretched leg just to deflect it away. But I think once that kind of happened, you start to think, you know what, this is probably United's day. Yeah, so it proved shortly after that, two 0 Henning Berg sending a long ball forward. Graham Lasso stops it from getting to York, but Andy Cole beats Marcel Desailly to the ball. Side note, he was not happy about that whatsoever. And then York somehow taking advantage of Ed De Hoy's terrible positioning at that point because he's nowhere on his line. But you can't take away from the quality of the strike, can you? It was, what, a toe-poked chip first time. It was absolutely gorgeous, wasn't it? Yeah, outside of the right foot. I mean, I've watched it again. I've watched it again, obviously, in preparation for this. And the way that he manages to get the ball up, over and down from the position he was in. And he doesn't even go in the far corner. It actually goes relatively close to the middle of the net. It actually it actually lands to the left of De Hoy in terms of his positioning. So he's got that, that deft chip just up and down so perfectly with the outside of his right foot. It's a goal of enormous quality. And I think it, it just summed up his contribution. That that really ended the tie at that point. Yeah, I mean, just on the hour mark as well, that really took the stuffing out of Chelsea, didn't it? Yeah. You know, it, that was apparently also this well, the fourth time we've beaten Chelsea in six seasons in the Cup. I mean, obviously the 4-0 uh, in 93-94 uh, season, the final stands out in, in amongst that. And also the 2-1 victory over Chelsea 
which I think was at Villa Park in '96. So yeah, there's some big games five, during three. that period. Five, five, three, three five, as well. Three I in completely the cup, yeah. forgot about that when I was doing this research. You went five nil up and conceded three goals in the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was absolutely nuts tie. But yeah, I mean, we, we had a lot more luck against Chelsea in the in the cup than we did in the league. But yeah, we got through again against against one of our biggest rivals, and then only had to face an even bigger one in the in the semi. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah, we've spoken about this in the previous episode, but knocking Arsenal back down and trying to topple them in both the league and the cup was such a huge undertaking that season wasn't it you know they were a a very miserly team they didn't necessarily let loose too often they were so well disciplined and so well drilled both in defense and attack they just gave you so little didn't they and coming into this game in particular and even just the first leg you know sorry the original tie it was four days after another another really draining night for United in the Champions League after that 1-1 draw with Juventus. And it's not surprising, perhaps, that it was, again, an incredibly tight affair. You know, it's most notable for that offside goal. I mean, I've had a look at that again. It took me several watches of Keane's volleyed strike to actually figure out where the offside was. I, I still don't understand it because, from my recollection of it, it York was essentially offside for passing to himself. Yeah. Was my was my interpretation of it. I couldn't understand at the time how it would been how it'd been given offside. Um and I still don't get it, as far as I'm concerned. That was a perfectly good goal. And Roy Keane agrees with me, so who am I to who am I to disagree? I mean, I'm not arguing with Roy. No. And again, one thing I forgot about this, uh Nelson Vivas sent off right at the death. I hadn't I didn't remember that at all, to be honest. And it, it, who who even who has even remembered Nelson Vivas? Well, someone, because we've done research for this, so we have well, yes, we we have now, but uh yeah can't tell you what he looks like but i do know he's argentinian so well done I remember. Nelson, I guess. short 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 bloke i remember him yeah yeah oh, there you go i, I did not I remember, remember encyclopedic knowledge for bullshit it makes me feel yeah. good about myself yeah it's good cool and again april 11th for that game and then of course three days later wednesday april 14th i believe it was, was the semi-final replay at villa park against arsenal Right, time for a quick break and a chance to mention that this week's episode is brought to you in association with the Pitch Sports app, which can be downloaded from the Apple and Google Play stores. You can join in with both Football Manager and FIFA 2000 simulations of games that are currently suspended, challenge your mates and compare your starting 11s. So you get on, it's a great little way to pass the time at the moment. So that's Pitch Sports on the Apple and Google Play stores. Now... It's very easy to overload this game with platitudes and superlatives, but I think in terms of the treble season, it's a game that sticks out more than perhaps any other, barring the actual uh, Champions League final itself. It's an incredible match, this one, isn't it, Richard? The 1-2 against Arsenal at Villa Park. It's just, it's, it's almost difficult to know where to start with it. You know, I think one thing in particular is that if you look at it in the context of Ferguson's battles with Wenger, obviously there's uh, an element of us being slightly biased, but I do feel like this is the defining statement of that rivalry if you look at it over the course of the seven or eight years that they had fighting out against each other. Possibly, yeah. I mean, it could have been. I, mean, I, I, I look back on this game as possibly one of the greatest football matches I've ever seen if ever a film was going to be made of a football match a fictional football match then that match would have been it because if you wrote a checklist of all the things that you would want to see in the most complete football match you can possibly imagine you'd have that that game would be it you would have world-class goals one of which is one of the greatest FA Cup goals of all time 
you'd have a one 70- of the greatest goals of all time, Rich. Well, let's. I'm happy to go that far, and also yeah. one one of the best chess rugs of all time afterwards. But also, <laughs> you, you've got you've got you've got a sending off. You've got a penalty at the death, absolutely the death. And, you know, Schmeichel didn't really save penalties, and Bergkam didn't miss penalties. And then to have an injury time with one team with 10 men to then score the goal and win the game in the manner that United did. That game was Roy of the Rovers, but it actually happened. And yeah, I mean, it still remains. Those two teams had the greatest rivalry of any during the Premier League era. Those, As you said, those two managers had the greatest rivalry ever, I think, of, the, of, the, of that mm-hmm. era as well. Could well have been the defining game, a defining game in that in that rivalry between the two of them. It was a defining game. I, I almost, I'm almost certain it was a defining game in United's season in terms of the entire treble as well, because it it, it it goes back to the fact that the season was self-sustaining. How could you come through that game, come out the other end of that game against your greatest foes, and not believe that you're destined to achieve what you want to achieve, and that you? How could you possibly think it, it can't happen to me? Because that if you know, if everything in a game, if everything that can go your way goes your way then they must have come out of that with such a high degree of certainty that, that, that this really was the chance for them to achieve the impossible that season. Well, it was just magic, wasn't it? I mean, thinking back to it and having watched the entirety of the game itself in preparation for this episode, I'm still in awe of what United achieved in that match. You know, let's, let's wind it right back to the start. You know, For a start, no Andy Cole in the squad at all. Ollie and Teddy both starting. And the prize was going to be uh, a final against Newcastle, who'd beaten Spurs an extra time. I think two Shearer goals at Old Trafford the previous, uh, well, several days previously. And again, going into this, Arsenal had never lost a cup semi-final replay before. And this was a battle against not only the competition's two most successful teams, but United at the point, at the, the time, were only top of the league by the one point. And Arsenal were unbeaten in six games against United too. Obviously, we covered the the two defeats that we'd already had to them, albeit one in the charity shield and then one uh, at Highbury earlier on that season. But yeah, I mean, the pressure on this game, even though you can say it's only the FA Cup, it was Arsenal in the FA Cup. It was a gigantic game. It was such a titanic struggle. And that was evidence in the sense that United really tried to put this game to bed again in a similar way to what way we did against Chelsea and get a goal quickly, didn't they? You know, it was looking at the first half hour or so, it's such a chaotic game. There's barely any transitions. There is some possession from Arsenal. United get it back and immediately bomb forward. It's an incredibly direct start to the game. You know, essentially, there's no need for any defence in the field at this point. You're only trying to build chances. United are just bombing straight back down to try and put Arsenal under pressure every time they get the ball. As soon as Michael gets it, he's kicking it long, and United is trying to hold it up and bring players into the game and trying to put Arsenal under as much pressure as they can as quickly as they can. Yeah, and I think if you, if you look to that Arsenal team, and there were there were so many areas of enormous strength, but that midfield of, you know, particularly with, with Vieira, but Vieira and Petit and it was such an area of strength for for Arsenal and and for from United's perspective the best thing they could do was was endeavor to bypass that as much as possible don't get into a battle with them in the middle of the pitch try and do what they did best which was get forward quickly at either in possession of the ball or or simply going longer than than we perhaps normally would and it and it really really unsettled Arsenal for quite a long time in that game you know when United took the lead they deserved to and I, I think there was a degree in that as well that the FA Cup allowed Fergie to use his squad and to give 
plenty of games to guys like Solskjaer and, and Sheringham. If you can say to them, look, we've got four strikers, you're probably not going to start a Champions League final or a game against Juventus, but you are going to be starting an FA Cup semi-final. And, and here you are, you're, you're essentially my third and fourth choice strikers, but I'm going to throw you in. But, but it allowed him just to keep elements of his team fresh and elements of his team that was they were still good enough to do some real damage to opponents and, and Arsenal couldn't switch off against those two forwards. And it was just a really cl- clever game plan, I thought, that kind of bypassed Arsenal's strongest element in their team, I think. And it really gave United the edge in that first half. Mm. Well, Arsenal didn't really settle until the end of that first half, really, did they? You know, United were putting them under such quick pressure. And again, you know, it it wasn't a surprise when we took the lead. You know, I think it, it came initially again from another long punt at the field by Schmeichel. And Arsenal at that point had tried to put some pressure on United and were caught out with the speed at which United were pressing forward. So let's have a look. Yeah, Keane hoded that initial cross, but sorry, the initial uh, clearance from Schmeichel, sorry, the initial goal kick out from Schmeichel out. You can only head it to Beckham, pass to Sheringham. Sheringham again, watching some of the goals that he scored this season, his hold-up play is absolutely stellar. He's so good at drawing a defender in and then laying it off to someone else and playing one-twos. So he took it on and then just very slowly teed it up. The ball was barely moving at the time and Beckham's got a couple of metres run up and just strikes the most wonderful dipping low strike into the bottom left-hand corner beyond David Seaman. Now, watching the replay back, I mean, at first, initially, looking at this and looking at it with fresh eyes, I'm thinking David Seaman's starting position there is terrible. It's not. It's not even that bad. It's just the shot is so good. It, it, it takes such a brilliant dip and just completely catches him by surprise. And it's from a flipping fair whack as well, isn't it? From a fair distance. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good 25, 30 yards out, I think, wasn't it? 25, certainly. And it was one of those goals that if you if you were watching, if you watched the treble season video or, or, or season videos from around that time and perhaps after the event, and you see, you see Beckham score so many great goals, so many brilliant free kicks, so many clean strikes, so many beautiful crosses that you almost start to take take them for granted. But if you if you look back at it two decades later and you you see goals of that quality and you realise that they those aren't the sorts of goals that you could take take for granted anymore, it was an absolutely world class goal mm. against a world class team and a world class goalkeeper. Yeah, and he and you know Seaman had Seaman had no chance. If you watch it, it was just Beckham had probably you know he had a foot square square foot in the bottom bottom corner to aim for from twenty five yards away. And he and he just hit it absolutely perfectly, and, and it wasn't you know he did it so often it wasn't a fluke. No, no disagreement there. I mean, it's one of his best goals ever. No argument there. I know I did say that the Spurs goal was probably his best slash favourite of mine in that last game of the season in the league, but this mm. one gives it a very close run for its money. And again, just watching the first half, Rich. Good God, United was so on top in this game initially, in that first sort of 40, 45 minutes, even the first hour, we were pushing so hard to put this game to bed as well. The pressure was pretty unrelenting, you know. Nicky Butt and Oli Solskjaer combining the edge of the area, and it takes Keown blocking it to stop, at least if not a goal, a very good save by Seaman to stop it being 2-0. Uh, Blankfist pulling it back for Sheringham in the box, who dug it out from in his feet and curled it just wide, and the Beckham free kick which Sheringham flicked on amazingly. It was an amazing curling header, and but it was just going past the far post. It was just a consequence again of United trying that tact again. Schmeichel to pump it forward. United were first to react. They got the ball quickly and they just attacked. There was no let up, and 
as you mentioned there, they bypassed that very talented Arsenal midfield and were putting all the pressure on that Arsenal back four. And they were lucky to go into that uh, half-time break just 1-0 down. Yeah, and I suppose it's the nature of football, isn't it? United would have gone in at half-time probably pretty pissed that they hadn't got a second goal and, and, and put the game, not if not to bed, but they certainly put themselves in a very, very comfortable yeah, position. Yeah, at least give themselves some leeway. But exactly, yeah, and then you come out in the second half with the prospect of having to do it all again. And, and the nature of football is that however great your dominance is or however much effort you put in, if you don't punish teams during that period of dominance, then there's always going to be probably a moment in the game where you can be undone. And, and unfortunately, that's 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 really what, what happened mm. to United. Um, oh, God. I mean, before we get there, first off, again, one of the more notable elements of that uh, 45 minutes, Roy Keane taking out Dennis Bergkamp with some studs on his ankle. It was a nasty challenge. I mean, mm. Keane was not happy about it. And I don't know whether or not this is me looking at it with a 2020 eyes, but I do wonder if there's not an argument to say that's a modern day red. It was not good. Mm. No, it was it was a poor challenge. I, I guess we expect a greater punishment for offences these days, don't we? So it's, it's sometimes difficult to put ourselves back in the context of the time, but it was certainly a, a, a nasty challenge. Yeah, and I guess as well, going into the end of that first half, Arsenal were starting to get a little bit of a head of steam. Emmanuel Petit and Nicolas Anelka are coming relatively close. Schmeichel, thankfully, was able to smother the initial shot, and then Neville pushed Anelka in wide enough that he couldn't get the shot on target from close range. But yeah, you know, at that point, you're thinking, has, is the tide starting to turn? But no, it really wasn't. United continued to have a series of really, really good chances in order to extend their lead. It completely scrubbed this chance in my mind. You know, Roy Keane set uh, Ali Solskjaer free on the left. He had so much time on the right hand side of Seaman's goal, and he just flashed it so badly wide. Had time to take a touch, took it first time, and it was, by his standards, um, any other standard, a really, really bad miss. For him as well. Yeah. I mean, considering that Solskjaer's greatest talent was his predatory instinct, it was a really poor, you know, rushed finish, which is really was really, really unlike him. Mm. Yeah, and then again, sharing and playing in Blunkfist with Arsenal centre-backs absolutely nowhere near him, and he can only fire at Seaman, who diverts it around the post. Another great chance, and we've still got two more to talk about before we get to the equaliser. <laughs> Ollie leading a break and squaring it to Beckham on the edge of the area or just inside the area, and you can see what he's trying to do. You see the way he opens his body up. He's trying to place it in the top corner beyond Seaman, but he can't quite get it on target. And then another goal kick headed back this time by Ronnie Johnson. It was such a massive clearance, and it catches Arsenal's midfield and defence completely on the hop. Solskjaer against Keown one-on-one. Solskjaer is just holding off Keown enough to get a shot off. But Seaman does well to save down low. I mean, Rich, so many chances leading up into the 70th minute. I mean, again, just watching this game, you could not see where the Arsenal equaliser was coming from. And I guess because we missed so many chances, maybe we should have expected it. Yeah, we should. And the fact that it was such a, an unfortunate goal to concede as well was, just, was was particularly cruel. You know, United weren't beaten by a moment of genius. They were beaten by a hideous deflection. I suppose it's it's again testament to the, the mental strength of this team that having dominated a game to a degree which they had for so long, to have led for so long as well, to be pulled back in that manner with 20 minutes to go, it must have been an enormously deflating experience. So to have actually recovered from that, I mean, the next 20 minutes was a blur, really, wasn't it? After after the Arsenal equaliser. But to, to have recovered... The next 50 minutes was a blur, Rich. A horrible, horrible blur. Well, it, well, it was, but it was a horrible, horrible blur. And then a, then a wonderful blur. But but that that, that was almost the, the biggest blow they could have... Arsenal could have struck at that moment in time was to score a goal and not even score a goal that they 
you know really deserved in terms of the the moment or the go- the game the wider game itself it was just a really fluky unfortunate goal to concede and it was really from that moment that the game just went absolutely insane well it's not necessarily that it even went absolutely insane it just went away from united didn't it i mean the bigger turning point is coming in a couple of minutes but yeah you're right i mean i was watching that goal again and i don't know why because i hadn't necessarily seen the replacement behind the goal but i didn't realize how massive that deflection is I mean, because it was great work from Burkham to at least set up the chance and he does a lovely bit of footwork as is his way, as is his want at the time. But the deflection is gigantic. You know, Schmeichel's saving that before it takes that touch off Stam. Initially, I was being quite damning of the poor man, but he's got no chance there. It was such a horrible deflection. It's taking the ball off course so badly. And yeah, Arsenal straight back in the game. But I guess it's credit to United that we instantly went back up to the other end of the pitch and almost took the lead again. And the only thing at this point is that you just wish you had Dwight York in the penalty area, not Teddy Sheringham. It was such a great pass across the goal. And Sheringham is just a millisecond behind play. He doesn't stick out of boot. Maybe isn't expecting it to come across so quickly. And the goal was absolutely gaping. And you expect a man of his ability in front of goal to at least do something in that instance. But it just didn't happen. This last element of the game is so is so difficult to recall and it, it had just become... It kind of lost all reason and structure to it by that point. Certainly, had in my head anyway. Um, and I was, I was talking about, I was talking about those those checkbox moments, that those tick box, mo- box moments that you'd want if you were dramatising this incredible fictional game. And of course, the next one, the next one to come is is the one I've forgotten, which was the the disallowed goal, which the opposition, <laughs> which which the which the opposition celebrated wildly for about a minute and a half, not realizing the goal had been had been ruled out. Yeah, um, I mean, at the time, you can understand why that happened. Like they, the most the half of the Arsenal team was stuck inside the Arsenal fans in the what was it, the North Stand of Villa Park, going absolutely mad. The noise was completely deafening, so it's no wonder they didn't know what was going on. I mean, completely the correct decision and a really good spot by the assistant referee at that stage because, wow, I mean, it, now Nelka did pretty well to actually round Schmeichel and then slot it in, but that was a that was a let off for United. A couple of a meter back their way, and United could potentially have been looking at losing this game. And the fact is, we the, the football coverage, sorry, the, the coverage, the TV coverage at that time takes so long to go back through to make sure that goal was actually offside. They actually completely missed the moment where Roy Keane gets sent off. They show the aftermath mm. of him hacking down Mark Overmars and David Ellery, the referee at the time. I mean, Keane's got no argument. He gave the referee no decision whatsoever there. Already on the booking, is is that a tired challenge? Is he just a bit fatigued? Either way, he he takes him down, get booking, red card, and at 70 minutes or so, 72 minutes, United staring at a very difficult period with 10 men. And especially if anyone was going to get sent off in that game. So it's happened to Roy Keane, where United were really trying mm-hmm. to get a foothold back in the game and trying to retake the lead. What a massive blow that was! Yeah, I mean, it, it felt at that time that United would we just had to kind of hang on, try and hang in there in the game, and perhaps try and get to the end of extra time and win a penalty shootout or something because it, it was difficult to see. I mean, who nobody beat that Arsenal team with ten men. So at that point, to, to face the prospect of the very least the rest of the ninety minutes, and then quite likely um, just um, extra time as well with with ten men. Given given the effort that, that United had put in. Not just over the game, but over the last, the previous few weeks or the previous couple of months, it didn't feel like it was a pos- it was it was something that was possible at the time in that moment. But then, obviously, we didn't. There, there was there was more heart attacks to come in in the short time that was left. Yeah, I mean, that red card 
is the turning point in the game in terms of the momentum, isn't it? That is when Arsenal take control of the match and United can't build attacks. They have no out ball. They're not able to build any pressure. It's all Arsenal pretty much for the next, what, 45 odd minutes of that game. And it is incredibly difficult to watch because United just can't really get out of their own half. The pressure is just unrelenting. And at that stage, watching this game back again now, what it reminds me of a lot is of United's Champions League exploits up until this season. You're thinking back to the quarterfinals or the semifinals, you know, the games against Dortmund, for instance, where United have put so much effort into trying to get a goal and get stung, and they're just not able to take that mental challenge and go beyond it and cope with those setbacks. Because we were on the cusp of doing really well in Europe for the couple of years preceding our 99 triumph, but we always fell a little bit short. This felt like one of those moments, didn't it? It felt like we'd been here before. We'd put a hell of a lot of effort into it. We'd done as well as we could. Something had happened that we couldn't necessarily find a way around. And at that point, and in particular, when Ray Parler was dancing into the penalty area and made Phil Neville commit, easy penalty. At that point, you're just thinking the game's gone. Yeah, I don't recall Peter Schmeichel saving another penalty in normal play. I think it's fair to suggest that Peter Schmeichel scored as many goals for United as he saved penalties for United. Yeah, as I remember, yeah, I've probably got poor recollection, but so I I had absolutely no faith in Bergkamp A missing and Schmeichel B saving when he did. I think that's maybe the moment when you think, you know what, maybe maybe, maybe, maybe Lady Luck is just it's just on our side this time. Maybe maybe there is something in this game where the, the, that we didn't see or didn't feel at that particular moment in time. Because by this point, that's it in the season. We've kind of almost seen it all already, hadn't we? Mm. Um, the, the one thing missing is Schmeichel saving a penalty. Once he'd done that, you know, <laughs> dreams can come true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at that point, United were really just trying to get through tracks of time, weren't we? You know, sharing him had come off his skulls and the tide had completely turned. But... Not letting that penalty in, Arsenal not scoring that goal right at the end of 90 minutes into a couple of minutes of stoppage time. Again, another massive, massive moment for United in the context of this two hours of football. And it got us through to extra time, didn't it? One of the most, I don't want to say pointless, but one of the least effective substitutions that I can remember looking back at this was your con for Solskjaer. Yes, Ollie was probably knackered by this point. But Dwight York barely had anything <laughs> that he could contribute to no, this match. No, impact at all. No. No. I, I, I mean, honestly, looking back now, the vast majority of extra time, and I watched it, I've watched the extra time back today, I, I remember almost none of it. I, I honestly, I remember the goal and the final whistle and the, the rest of the rest of extra time is a blur to me. Um, and I think it was just, it was just, it was just a madness. I was exhausted. I mean, I, I don't recall being quite as exhausted watching United game ever as I was watching that one. Mm. It kind of felt like I'd been we'd been put through absolutely everything in the ninety minutes and then you've got another thirty minutes of the same. And just as the, the players were clearly incredibly mentally and physically tired on the pitch, I was tired as a fan watching it and just trying to work out what on earth was going to happen next. Well, what happened next was uh, Overmars setting up Burkamp for a great strike at goal. Amazing shot, which Michael palmed away and ended up hurting his groin in the process. And we had no, mm, we had no subs yes. left because they hadn't implemented that rule where you can have an extra substitution for extra time. So essentially, what was it? Yeah. Gary Neville doing goal kicks after that. Extra time, Arsenal were pushing hard at this point. 
you know, there was a Ray pile across from Martin Keown, and he's just a little bit ahead of it. But another free header, no one anywhere near him, and he spoons it over. It's a great chance. And then Burkamp running into the box, several targets to aim for, pulls it back and finds Gary Neville. And then I think from the subsequent corner, at least one of the corners close to that, Ronnie Johnson was trying to clear it, but it spins off his boot and very nearly goes in. <laughs> and Michael saves it, manages to get it away into half time. But in that 15 minutes, Rich, again, United had nothing. There was no outball, was there? There was no opportunity to counter. We couldn't put any pressure on Arsenal whatsoever at this stage. We were surviving. We were just trying to get through to penalties at this time. But that's what you'd expect against a, against a team of that quality, against a midfield with the quality they had, and, and against the forward quality they had. And there was a lot of pace in that team as well. And it was just, <clears throat> there was such a difficult team to defend against in, in the best of times. But that tired with 10 men was... You know, it was just incredible that we were still in the game at that point, And then suddenly we were more than in the game. Uh-huh, that's right. I mean, we talked about this game and how easy it is to lace it with platitudes. What about this goal, Rich? I mean, the best goal I think anyone has scored on a Manchester United shirt, the best individual goal, just for, again, looking back at this entire game, the context at which it was scored in, two hours of football, you know, where were we were 109th minute, United down to 10 men, playing the best team at that time, maybe in the country, or at least the second best, a team who were the FA Cup reigning champions, the Premier League reigning champions, a team who had been basically battering us for 25 plus minutes at this stage with the extra man, had just had a penalty saved, were really pushing for that winner. And then we have no out ball, we've got no ability to get up any sort of counter attacks, and then... It's Vieira with a lazy pass towards Lee Dixon and Giggs has the moment of his life. I mean, the only way we were, we were going to win that game was through a madness, wasn't it? Yeah. And a, and a, and a, and a, madness, a madness we were given. It was, you know, again, it, it was one where you could you could clearly see, you know, Arsenal wouldn't concede that goal in the 20th minute of a game. But you had the incredibly tired legs, incredibly tired minds, and, and Giggs just took absolutely full advantage of that and and it is just one of those ones where you think I've got absolutely nobody in front of me I've got the ball there's some there's some space I'm just going to run and see what happens yeah and that's that that's clearly what he did I mean every moment of it was just was just improvisation wasn't it it was just deciding well I've got nothing else on so I'm just going to keep going but the most amazing thing about that goal isn't the run and the, and the run is amazing enough but it's actually to to have run that distance at that point in the game with the ball at your feet to find yourself in what is still really difficult angle against a world-class goalkeeper and to produce the finish that he produced mm. past Seaman into the roof of the net from from there I mean that's that's the marvel for me more than potentially more than the run yeah I mean 999 times out of a thousand when you're in that position regardless of what run you've taken you're thinking of hitting it back across the keeper you are not thinking I'm going to blast this through him essentially into the roof of the net no I mean he just he just basically put his put his left foot right through it didn't he kind of gave you every ounce of energy that he had in his in his in his leg it was just perfectly placed and it was had enough power that Seaman just couldn't react if you're you're writing a script for a film then you're you're your winning goal scored in that manner should should be at the end of an incredible mazy run with a shot that's then fired into the roof of the net in dramatic style before you turn away and run off take your shirt off and twizzle it around your head <laughs> i mean I, I don't get how he had the energy for that at all this was close to 150 minutes into the game and to have the not just the physical energy but the mental energy to think yes i'm going to do this and the ability to 
basically ripped through. All right, they were stretched, but a very good Arsenal defence. You know, dancing in between Dixon and Keown like that. I mean, again, in the context of this game, watching the whole thing, I've got even more admiration for that goal than I had prior. You know, it, it was just a stunning, stunning moment. And if I never see a goal that good again in my life in a United shirt, then fine, I've had that, and that's more than enough. Yeah, I mean, it's probably it's probably the most surreal and intense moment I've had as a United fan that that game. Yeah, I mean, even more than even more than the Champions League final. I mean, the Champions League final obviously was incredible, but that game was just, you know, when you watch you watch a football game and you just can't believe what's happening, and that happened a few times in that game, and you just you just can't believe what you're seeing again and again and again, and that goal just kind of finishes it off. I think I spent the, the final few minutes of that game just kind of slumped, <laughs> slumped in, slumped in a slumped in a chair, not knowing exactly what what was happening from that point on, but just somehow getting to the final whistle and then and then exploding i mean i think it was more impressive maybe well maybe impressive press is the wrong word but i think yeah maybe it is impressive i think maybe is an element of it being a little bit more impressive considering the color the caliber of the opponent considering how much was stacked against united at that point than perhaps you know coming back from buying in the way that we did you know i think you look at the ways in which United were going to win that game, and there is just that way, apart from maybe a penalty shootout, there were very, very few ways in which United were going to come out of that replay after Roy Keane got sent off winning that match. And that was one of the very few minuscule ways it could have happened. And I guess the only sad thing about it is that the final had no chance of living up to it. <laughs> no. I mean, the, the, the stupid thing is that the final was one of the least least eventful games of that entire season. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to spend anyone here much talking about the final if we did that last Arsenal game because what's the point? No, I mean it was it was the most routine of wins, wasn't it? And against a really really poor Newcastle team, and the, 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 really the only moments of note were the goals and 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 Roy Keane getting injured. That's true. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, yeah, we can put some context on it, can't we? I mean, as you mentioned, oh, Roy we, Keane, absolutely, yeah. we absolutely can. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. So Keane and Skulls both making their last starts of the season because they were both obviously suspended for the Champions League final after picking up yellow cards against Juventus. Uh, Sheringham and York were on the bench at this point. Newcastle done a bit of the research on what was going on with them at the time, led by one Ruud Hullett, who led them to a pretty mm. rubbish 13th place finish in the league. And not only that, Rich, we were talking about how big United's budget was for their Premier League uh, in the Premier League episode last week. Newcastle spent £28.5 million in the summer of 1998 and had finished 13th, including, I think it was £8 million on Duncan Ferguson from Everton. Wow. Mm. I mean, in modern terms, that's what, a hundred million pound splurge, maybe? Yeah, it's a lot of money. I guess we kind of forget that there was a quite an extended period when Newcastle really were spending a lot of money on some good footballers and some less good footballers. Mm. Um, you know, I, I suppose it was kind of the, the fact that they had Alan Shearer up front, who was still a world-class centre-forward, who they paid an enormous amount of money for. But a large number of the players that he that were surrounding him, who'd also signed for quite a lot of money, were considerably less talented and, and as they they as I say they had they had Hullet as manager who demonstrated himself to not be as great a coach as he was a footballer during that period but yeah I mean they, they had spent a lot of money but they they had had a really really poor season and they didn't offer really anything much in that in that final at all now I mean you know you mentioned Roy Keane getting injured it was a relatively innocuous if not particularly pleasant challenge from Gary Speed early on that ended his campaign and then Terry Sherman came on and it was what less than a minute later that he scored 
I mean, it was a really slick move this as well. Cole taking the ball on, uh, sends a slightly overzealous pass over to Sheringham, his best mate Teddy Sheringham, uh, who lays it off as Skulls and then gets it back first time. And yeah, he's very grateful to Steve Harper for rushing out somewhat inexplicably from his line. But he just struck it home so easily. It was, and he nutmegged him as well. I didn't realize until I was watching several replays. Didn't yeah. need to come out, but it was a great finish. And as soon as that goal went in, you're just thinking United are going to be able to power through this. We just, it just felt like we were in the ascendancy for the rest of the game after that. Yeah, with, and without having to really do anything spectacular to to achieve that, they, they Newcastle just didn't ever get any kind of control of that game. They never really got into the game in any way that 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 really threatened United in any, to any great extent. It felt like when the second goal came, the Skulls goal came, that it, was, it had just been a matter of time and it was it almost taken longer to come than you'd expected. But the, really, the game felt over from that early Sheringham goal. Perhaps that, that we were just... We were, we've were we had so many incredible topsy-turvy games that season that things probably... We've probably felt more confident than we should have done. I don't know, but 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 the game felt dead from the moment that Sheringham scored and, and Newcastle didn't really ever do anything to, to shake that feeling that it was, it was relatively comfortable. Well, it wasn't a season in which United were able to take early leads and then sit back and enjoy a modicum of comfort, really, were they? You know, the, no, the, the, no, the whole premise of the treble season is based on United being uncomfortable and having to react and either having to come back or break teams down. As soon as we got that goal, I didn't get the sense from Newcastle that they had anything in them that they could actually challenge United and get a goal back, much less you know win no. the game themselves. So yeah, when Skulls did get that second goal, let's go through that. So Oli over the top for Ryan Giggs, uh, but Nikos Davazos gets back first, but his clearance is absolutely atrocious. <laughs> Solskjaer got to there first, passed it to Teddy Sheringham. So uh, yeah, Sheringham replaying the favour for Skulls and just able to roll home. Rubbish starting position from Steve Harper again, but another really slick move from United. And as soon, I mean, you say it was, you know, we felt relatively comfortable after Sheringham scored early on. After Skull scored and made it 2-0, it was a foregone conclusion. Newcastle did have a couple of efforts. You know, I remember Dietmar Harman, uh, who'd just been bought from Bayern Munich the previous summer with a long-range strike that Schmeichel had palmed wide. Um, and then Ketz Bayer, uh, after rounding Schmeichel after a bit of a chaotic response to a corner, uh, was able to get a really good shot on goal. And what was technically an empty net because Schmeichel was nowhere. And then David May with a wonderful full-stretch block to keep it out. And then I guess the only other thing of note, maybe, uh, sharing him clipping the crossbar with a delightful chip. I mean, what a goal that would have been after Giggs just running at the Newcastle defence. It would have been a wonderful close. But yeah, 2-0. And I think United, knowing that they were, what, four days at that stage away from the Champions League final, I think they knew their game management really came into the fore at this point and they were able to just deal with whatever Newcastle had, which is very little, admittedly, and just see their way through. And I guess one of the the great things about watching United's reaction to winning this as well was the togetherness of the squad, wasn't it, Rich? You know, the, they were in such a huddle straight away and you could just see the entire team, the togetherness on display. It, it was really, really encouraging. And no wonder they were able to do so many amazing things this season with team spirit that strong. I think as well, if you, by that point, they'd come through so many incredible games, so many challenges, they'd, they'd come through, through them together. And I think that togetherness probably evolved throughout that process. Because you know, if you'd have said, if you'd have talked about that togetherness the previous November or December, I think we would we would have found that a little bit strange because it was still a team that was really finding itself, that was trust starting to trust itself, a squad that was trust starting to trust each other. But by the by the time they'd won the 
the, the Premier League and then won the FA Cup as well. That this was a squad that knew what what they were capable of and that there was had been through. I don't like comparing sport to war or anything like that. You know, it's it's, it's a pure old comparison. But they they'd been through kind of emotional roller coaster to get to the point where they were that they were at at that point. And so that I think had fostered that togetherness and and that absolute trust in each other and and wanting to win not for themselves but for each other as well. Those are the times in a footballer's career that they have they, that, that, that everything they do is working towards. And I, I guess there was a, a realization from a lot of those players that they were very 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 close to achieving something which few other footballers could or would ever do. Well, it's the fact as well. You know, we've seen several teams in the last 21 years since United won the Champions League final on the 26th of May compared with this team. But ultimately, no English side has come close to it. No. And even Liverpool, who have got such a great team at the minute, and we, you know, there's no harm in admitting that and acknowledging that fact. The fact that in the two seasons they've had where they've been absolutely world class. Lost in the semi-final, sorry, lost in the Champions League final to Real Madrid. Won it against Spurs last season, on the uh, winning the league at a canter this term, but could only get through to the last eight in the Champions League final. It just shows, obviously, football's changed so much in those twenty-one years, but the way in which it is still so much of a challenge for teams to compete on several fronts at once, let alone two is just incredible. And the fact that no English team since has been able to win both the Premier League and the Champions League simultaneously should make it clear just how difficult an achievement it is to win two elements of the treble, let alone all three. Yeah, I mean, United United were the only only side to do that again in 07-08. But, and, and even then, thinking about that season, you know, you, you realise, looking back, what an absolutely monumental achievement that was as well. And the, the number of games, the number of massive games you have to come through to to be in the position to win the Premier League, let alone to win the Champions League as well. And to, to have done it on three fronts, I think is something that I would be very surprised if another if another English team ever achieves achieves the same again, even with what, what is a reduced importance FA Cup now. I mean, if you, you look at the quality of City over the last few years and the dominance they've had over the Premier League until this season, really, they haven't managed to really get close to achieving they've, they've won the, the domestic treble but they haven't got really close to winning that Champions League for United to have done it when they were really scrapping for a league they didn't have enormous dominance over the Premier League they didn't have dominance over Arsenal at that time to have done what they did that season and to win the double in itself against a, a great team like Arsenal was an enormous achievement but to have actually pushed on from there and done the treble is something that I think will possibly never be um, achieved again no. alright last question of the night then Rich is this United's best FA Cup triumph of the 90s? I think it's the most... I think the run to the FA Cup was the most challenging. I don't think we could have had a harder a sequence of games to, to actually win the FA Cup. You know, we had to we had to play essentially our three strongest rivals and, and five games against them and didn't lose any of them. And and the circumstances they were won in as well. There'll never be games like like those. To, I mean, that the, the, the Liverpool game, the Arsenal game, are the kind of games that teams have in in a cup competition maybe once in a decade. And we had two of them within two rounds of each other. <laughs> um, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And in terms of the quality teams we had to play, and in terms of the, the ride that we had to go on to get to the effort, to, to that final and win and win that trophy, I don't think there are many FA Cup seasons that United have had that have been as much of a challenge and as much of a ride as that 
Right, that's part two of this treble series completed, and I won't surprise you to hear that part three will be focusing on United's unforgettable Champions League campaign of 1999. Hope that you enjoyed this episode of Rich and Myself, and if you have, we'd be hugely grateful for any social media shares or ratings and reviews on iTunes or any other podcast app that you can spare. It would be a big help for us. Don't forget, during this football lockdown period, Pitch Sports are running simulations on all the currently suspended games on Football Manager and FIFA 2000, alongside running competitions, so you can download the Pitch Sports app from the Google Play or Apple Store. And don't forget, we're always available to chat about anything United related or anything else on Twitter. The podcast can be found at Red Voices MUFC, I can be found at Ewan Lennox, and Rich can be found at at Rich Red Voices, and the podcast itself can be found on various different apps such as spotify soundcloud the uh, apple podcast app and stitcher so have yourselves a superb week and we'll be back with you in about seven days time to discuss that champions league run take care of yourselves goodbye 